You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Here is your host, Emily. Hey, welcome back to episode 14 of the Untaming Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed and saw the relevance in last week's episode with Ollie Langridge. Ollie had hundreds of people join him to mark his 100 days outside of Parliament, along with speeches from MPs, youth leaders and scientists. He is ramping up his protest now to large gatherings every Friday. So if you are in Wellington, New Zealand, wander down and support him. We had a small protest in solidarity with Ollie last week in Christchurch. I didn't know anyone else there, but I do now. And it was pleasantly surprising to see what a diverse range of backgrounds, ages and countries we all came from. If you enjoyed Ollie's episode, then tune in next week for my interview with Kirk Hall, an environmental advocate. An earnest student of United Nations and IPCC reports, he presents a clear picture of the current state of the planet and the stark reality of our future. Don't miss that episode. I had a lot of fun talking to Jennifer Grayson for today's episode. We hit on some pretty heavy topics surrounding formula feeding and delved into lesser-known aspects of breastfeeding. As controversial as these subjects can be, we still managed to end with a laugh. Thirty-nine-year-old Jennifer Grayson was born in New York City, grew up in small-town New England, and currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband Matthew, Izzy, who is almost nine, and six-year-old Mika her most important life's work. Jennifer Grayson is an award-winning journalist and author focused on the environment, human evolution and social change. Her book Unlatched, The Evolution of Breastfeeding and the Making of a Controversy was the winner of the 2017 Rachel Carson Environment Book Award and the recipient of a 2016 Nautilus Book Award. Jennifer is also the creator and host of the Uncivilized podcast a journalist exploration of the human rewilding movement. Her other writings have appeared in numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the Huffington Post. Jennifer's lifelong commitment to restoring our time's vanishing connection to the natural world led directly to her research for Uncivilized and Unlatched. Last night, she had nearly seven hours of sleep, not the eight she would have liked, And for lunch today, she had leftover grilled chicken and zucchini from her CSA tea with pumpkin seed milk that she made herself. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. That makes me sound far more virtuous than I really am. (laughs) I came across your Uncivilized podcast because it was recommended to me by iTunes. And so I've since listened to every single episode and I look forward to your next season with great anticipation. I think I was up to episode five or six before I realized that I was already familiar with your work as an avid fan of the Rewild Yourself podcast. I'd previously heard you talk about breastfeeding in your book Unlatched on one of his episodes. So I downloaded the ebook on my phone, but only made it about halfway through before my nine month old (laughs) drawled on my phone, rendering it unusable. (laughs) Can you tell us what led to your research and ultimately your writing of Unlatched? Of course. And first of all, let me just say thank you so much for such a nice introduction, Emily. And congratulations on your show. I You have such a wonderful presence, and I know this is going to be a huge success. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I think if you had asked me when I was in my 20s if I was going to or told me maybe with the crystal ball that one day I would write a book about breastfeeding, I would have completely laughed my head off. <laughs> I, uh, I truly had never even really thought about breastfeeding my entire life. Uh, I was formula fed as a baby. And it wasn't even that wasn't something that I ever even knew about or talked about. It was just it just goes to show you how normalized formula feeding is in the modern world. It's just it was just an accepted fact of my childhood. Mm. And it's kind of interesting, too, because just to put it into some context. So I grew up with a mom who was very much into like going outside and and getting fresh air and she baked everything from scratch and we shopped at the health food store. And so it never occurred to me that there was this like formula feeding anomaly within the greater context of my otherwise very natural childhood. Mm. And it really was the first time when I thought about breastfeeding, uh, other than just once, I guess, when I'd seen my cousin breastfeed years and years before, was when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And of course, by then, Breast is Best was very much in our public consciousness. And uh, the hospital where I was going to give birth to her, I had had a midwife who was in charge of my care, and they were very much... uh, involved in educating about breastfeeding. And so I said, of course, I'm going to breastfeed. And I didn't really think much more of it. And one day I had a series of epiphanies that really led to the book. But the first thing that happened was that it was almost like, I I kind of think of it as like this miraculous moment in my life. I received a sample of formula in the mail. So I opened this container. And have you ever gotten one of those samples? Do you get them where you're Um, living, Emily? don't think we do. Maybe, but not me. Okay. Well, it's very common in the US. You basically, when you're a new mom and if you look on any website for baby products or you subscribe to, you know, Parents Magazine or anything, you're put on this list and you're allowed to be sent marketing supplies from formula companies. And so I had received this container of promotional infant formula and I opened it up and I thought, hmm, well, you know, I I really want to breastfeed, but I'm going to I guess I'll just put it aside just in case for whatever reason that I can't breastfeed. And my husband said to me, what are you doing? You've realized that this is like an advertising ploy, right? And I, I suddenly realized, well, of course this is, you know, I'm a journalist. I write about environmental issues. How am I this obtuse? And I, he said, what's even on the back of that package? And I turned it over and there on the back of the package was literally the first time I had even considered that this, this is what the building blocks of my life was. And Mm. I looked at those ingredients and it was, you know, corn syrup solids and nonfat milk and hydrolyzed proteins and and all these other unpronounceable vitamin additives. And I thought, oh, my God, I had never really thought about this before. And I had had an entire lifetime as a young adult of chronic health issues. And no one, no doctor had ever once asked me, what were you fed as a baby? And so that was really the beginning of my journey of thinking about how we had become so disconnected from this essential biological process. Hmm. Could you give us then a rundown on the history of breastfeeding and, well, like your subtitle says, the making of the controversy surrounding breastfeeding? Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> That's an entire book, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. So basically, as many of your listeners probably know, in traditional societies, in hunter-gatherer societies, for most of human history, for our seven million years of human evolution, it wasn't a question. Babies were breastfed. I mean, this is how we have evolved to feed our young. And if it's really interesting, too, because even in, in 
ancient hunter-gatherer societies. And I, I wish I'd done more research in this area. I did a bit, but if I had to rewrite the book again, I probably would have devoted a couple chapters to it about breastfeeding in, in traditional societies. But in the instance for in a traditional society where for any reason a mother may have died, babies often, that, that was really a case for infanticide. Mm. And so because they knew that a baby could not survive without its mother's milk, and there were no other women around to feed it because every, these were very small, close-knit groups of people. And so it was just a given. Your mother had to breastfeed you or life was not possible. And so that's how we lived for most of our human history. And then fast forward to the advent of agriculture and people living in permanent places and more people and populations exploding. And all of a sudden there were more women to go around and more nursing women to go around. And that's when we saw the rise of wet nursing, which is when someone else can feed a baby other than the mother. Uh, and so wet nursing was really one of one of human history's almost oldest professions. I, I like to say it's like, you know, the first mm. oldest profession uh, other than the <laughs> other one we often think of. <laughs> so, you know, Fast forward hundreds of years, so we have thousands of years where wet nursing happens, but really for most of most of the time since the dawn of agriculture and the rise of civilizations, it really was something that only happened for the very, very mm. wealthy. Uh, it was, you know, royalty used wet nurses. You think of the story of Moses and how uh, he they had a wet nurse for Moses and, and Egyptian royalty and other members of royal families would always use wet nurses as a way to conceive other children and to conceive more heirs because as we know breastfeeding inhibits ovulation and so that was one of the ways that wet nursing was used throughout history and then fast forward to really everything changed i will say and i don't want to keep rambling on but really everything changed and the controversy as we know it began uh really at the advent of the industrial revolution when all of a sudden women started experimenting with something other than human milk. So before this, women fed their own babies, and then women had other women feed their babies for them in small numbers, but they were still being fed breast milk. But then all of a sudden, we had the rise of people actually artificially feeding their babies and feeding them things like cow's milk. And so that's where this really all began. And in America, it really happened at the turn of the last century. So your research for your book took you around the world. Can you share some of the different cultural approaches you experienced towards breastfeeding in the different countries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, and I didn't just travel around the world in the present. This was also, I traveled virtually back in time. And so one of the interesting cultures I looked at was 18th century France and then also modern day France. And so France, we like to think of as this very modern day France, as this very open society, as this society where women are very liberated. They're much more comfortable with nudity than we are here mm. in the U.S. And yet they have one of the lowest breastfeeding rates in the industrialized world. And that was kind of a shock for me to uncover. And so that sort of brought me into this whole world of exploring how breasts became sexualized. And it's something that really happened all the way back in 18th century France, as I found out. So... That was one of the really interesting cultures that I explored. I also looked at, you know, some really traditional cultures. Like I, I didn't get to travel, unfortunately, because I had two very young kids at home at the time. But mm. I spoke with people who live in Mongolia, oh. where they are very much nursing as they have forever. And there, you know, it's common to breastfeed a child until 
six, seven, eight, even nine. And it's common for women to nurse other people's children if a mom's not around. You know, if you're like your baby's crying and you're not there, like a mom even at a local school gathering will step <laughs> in and nurse nurse your baby for you. And wow. so, yeah, I, I, it was really th- such a fascinating look at all of these different cultural approaches to breastfeeding. But the bottom line is, in the Western industrialized world, we no longer see this as an essential biological process. We no longer see breastfeeding as the norm. And there are all sorts mm-hmm. of different reasons why this has happened. And then in tr- more traditional societies, whenever you go places that are considered more third world countries or India, for example, that are much more closely connected to the way people always did things. They haven't yet industrialized in the way that we have. You find that breastfeeding is very accepted and uh, it very much is the norm to breastfeed a, a child well into toddler years or even early childhood. Wow. Could you talk uh, more about 18th century France? Sure. So 18th century France was this remarkable period in human history where virtually no children were breastfed by their mothers. You So you look at the statistics and uh, in Paris around this time, 3% of babies were nursed by their own wow. mothers. Yeah, <laughs> it's astounding. And so you it be, had become so accepted that no, no one even realized that this was totally bizarre. And so I started digging in and, and trying to figure out, well, how did this happen? And the result of the fact that all of these babies were wet nursed um, is that Paris and France had an absolutely astounding mortality rate because they weren't just having wet nurses come into their homes. What actually happened is the babies were being shipped off to the countryside. And so a baby would be born and then sent away to live with a wet nurse miles and miles away and possibly never, ever see their parents again. Many of them died and a lot of, it wasn't necessarily even because they were being fed by someone else, but because of just the sloppy care that they were in um, while they were so many miles away. And it's kind of this forgotten period of history that that I never even knew about. And it actually has direct ties to how France feels about breastfeeding today. So was this just in France or in all of kind of Europe or Western countries? This was something that had happened very much in Western European countries in very small mm-hmm. pockets. I mean, so look, look, if you look at the broad picture, yeah. most women, even in America, up until 1900, breastfed their own children and they breastfed mm-hmm. them on average from two to four years of age or even more. So that's yeah. that's like the given. But there were these isolated pockets uh, in very large cities in Europe. So you had um, Florence was an area where there was also not only a lot of wet nursing, but also these foundling hospitals where women couldn't take care of their children. So that's the other part of the the picture too. And this is what happened Mm. in 18th century France. I started saying, well, why would all these women send their children away? And it wasn't just because they were from an upper class and they decided that they they were too posh essentially to breastfeed their own children. It was because of the economic pressures of those times, which I found are very similar to the ones we face today. So women in Paris, women in Florence, you know, in, in London too, right before industrialization, they mm. had to work. And the majority of these women who had to send their babies away were giving birth to 12 to 15 children over the course of their lifetime. They had to work in stores. They had to work in various ways of keeping their family alive. And they physically couldn't. The way their economic system was structured is so that they couldn't breastfeed their own children. They just didn't have the support necessary. And so that's how all of these little wet nursing industries evolved. But it was something that really happened in in industrialized urban societies. So 
can you talk then about how this evolved into us, you know, not wanting to see breastfeeding in public now, like how breasts are sexual organs, well, seen as sexual organs? Right. So it's so interesting that at this time in 18th century France, when wet nursing is arguably the, the highest rate ever in human history, this was also the time when Marie Antoinette and her plunging bodices suddenly became this kind of fashion, became all the rage. And it's not a coincidence. So basically what happened mm. is breasts became hidden from view because women were not out in the open nursing their babies. So you have to remember that from all of human history, breasts were never hidden away. If, it, it, if a child needed to be fed, breasts were exposed out in the open, even in societies where women were cloaked from the floor to their throats. You know, you think about like Elizabethan England and the way women mm. dressed then, but a breast would be fully exposed because that was just how <laughs> babies were fed. But so then you had a situation like 18th century France where all of a sudden nursing was outsourced. Women weren't feeding their own babies and breasts were hidden from view. And they essentially, what happened was that they, they became fetishized very much in the way uh, anthropologist Catherine Detweiler always talks about the parallels between what happened with breasts and what happened with feet in ancient China with foot binding. So oh, yeah. it's like this, this body part that really serves another purpose, right? Breasts are to feed children. They are an essential human organ, but then they're hidden from view. So And feet too, they're for walking. Mm. But all of a sudden you had all these upper class people in ancient China who weren't supposed to walk. They were supposed to be pampered and, and show that they were too wealthy to do any labor. And so they became hidden from view and they became fetishized. And so that's what happened in 18th century France, where you started to see the rise of, of women's breasts being coveted in this sexual way. And that's exactly what happened. The other notable instance in, in human history when this happened was in the post-World War II generation in the United States, where breastfeeding rates had plummeted. People were no longer breastfeeding was no longer common. Um, and you had the rise of Marilyn Monroe and these propped up breasts with these pointy cone bras. And, and that's when all that happened. So a lot of people think, well, breasts are sexualized and then people stop breastfeeding. That's not how it happened. It was the other way around. So breasts became hidden from view and then they were ascribed to different purposes. And so, so for me, that was one of the most fascinating discoveries of the whole book. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. I came across an article you wrote for the Huffington Post after speaking with Professor Peter Hartman about tests for breastfeeding. Yes. I was so surprised to learn that there are no tests for uh, normality. Could you expand on this some more for us? Right. So as Peter Hartman would say, the breast consumes 30% of the body's total energy. That's more than the brain. That's more than the heart. And yet this is an organ that is arguably pivotal to life, and yet we know nothing about it. And so you look at something like the Mayo Clinic uh, and how they treat erectile dysfunction, and there are thousands of doctors. If there's something wrong with, or, you know, if, if, if a man has problems with sexual intercourse, there is like teams of doctors to help him. Um, if a woman runs into any trouble breastfeeding, there are no tests to assure a woman that the functionality of the breast is normal. And so I just found that so astounding. If you look at even the numbers for doctors, there's the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, which is this fairly recent organization of doctors who are devoted to, you know, encouraging breastfeeding and, and educating doctors about being well-versed in breastfeeding issues. And there are only 88 members at last check. Wow. So, yeah. <sighs> I mean, if you look at even like the scientific research, uh, one of the 
most interesting scientist I interviewed for the book, Katie Hind, who's an evolutionary biologist. She's my age. And when I interviewed her, she was 35. And when she was doing her postgraduate work at her, her doctoral work at UCLA, there had only been two papers ever written on non-primate human milk synthesis. Oh, my goodness. No one had even studied it as a scientist. So, and she's my age. I mean, this isn't like <laughs> yeah. someone who's been been doing this research for a long time. She's now one of the most foremost lactation researchers in the world. Yeah, it's this area that is absolutely completely ignored. And, and that's definitely one of the reasons, one among many, 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 why it's so difficult for women in the modern world to breastfeed because we've sort of lost this connection of know-how from our from our mothers and from our grandmothers so many of us are isolated now and we've lost this connection to our past and our cultural history and one of the things we lost was the knowledge of how to breastfeed and so we look to doctors to kind of fill in that gap and yet they know nothing and so yeah it's one of the huge barriers that I hadn't really known about in your podcast episode with Lars Bode and Alan Daly two scientists at the University of California San Diego working for one of the first research centres in the world focused on unravelling the mystery of the human milk. They say that breast milk is human tissue. Can you please share more about that with us? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that Lars Boda, so he's also one of the foremost lactation researchers in the world. Mm. And now he is the director of a huge centre of human milk research at UC San Diego. Um, And so this field is rapidly expanding uh, in large part because of his work. So if you're interested in knowing more about the science of milk, you should definitely check out his work. It's pretty fascinating. But one of the things he said that blew me away was that human milk is not a food. Human milk is a tissue. And so, yeah, right? I mean, we kind of think of it as just something you give babies to grow. But what we don't realize is that it's... It's this mixture of thousands of complex nutrients, hormones, stem cells, immunoactive molecules, microorganisms, fatty acids, T cells, oligosaccharides, which are these complex sugars that have evolved to feed the microbes in milk. And there are microbes in milk. We originally thought human milk was sterile. And so there are thousands upon thousands of all of these living components in human milk that we actually don't even have a full catalog of because We've mapped the human genome, but we haven't mapped what's in human milk. Yeah, it's <laughs> so surprising. Is, so is that the case for all mammalian milk? Like, does cow's milk contain, like, bovine tissue? I actually, I'm not, I'm not an expert on um, other mammalian milks, but what I do know, I do know the basics is that human milk is far more complex than most other mammalian okay. milks. And it is very specific to the human infant. So when you look at something even like oligosaccharides, those sugars I just mentioned, they're patterned in a way that's specific from that mother to her specific infant. And so this is just this complex, complex human life force that has evolved over millions and millions of years. And yeah, uh, yeah I, found that, I found that part so fascinating. I mean, even when like if you look at some of the research around the human microbiome, and there's so much research emerging now about how human milk and breast milk, I should say, uh, influences the b- microbiome from birth. Mm. When the, when the microbiome project first started, when we were trying to, scientists were trying to discover the human microbiome, they also didn't even think to study breast milk because they didn't even think those molecules were in there. They, they studied every fluid in the human body, urine, feces, oh, wow. blood. I mean, they studied literally everything except Just for human milk. milk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the lack of knowledge, this idea that we've, we've come up with this, or I should say the formula companies have come up with this marketing ploy of 
you know, breast is best, but if you can't, formula's pretty darn close. It's not. And not only is it not close, we have no idea how close it's not because the research hasn't even been done yet. And every day scientists discover something else astounding. And I wish somehow that was communicated more to the general public. Yeah. Oh. So when when my son was born, I didn't really have any breastfeeding goals, though I didn't I didn't see myself going much further than about a year. But it was only uh, learning that after a year, not only was breast milk breast milk heavily contributing to their growing immune system, but there was literally nothing else natural or synthetic that even came close to helping to build their immune system, which is why I'm still nursing him at three and a half. In the first episode, Dr. Dasha Narvaez has pointed out that the connection between the natural weaning ages in small band hunter-gatherer societies of, I think you said this as well, about two and a half to seven years, and then the immune system, which isn't fully mature until about the ages of four and six years. So what can you share with us about breastfeeding and the immune system? Right. Well, yeah, I listened to that episode and it was fascinating. And she's absolutely right. So the human immune system isn't evolved until much later than we think, which is one of the reasons why the World Health Organization says that babies should be nursed for two years or beyond. Because when you look at non-industrialized countries that have real sanitation issues, not access to clean water, um, no plumbing, and they're exposed every day to just all sorts of um, detrimental microbes, it's essential because those babies will die without breast milk. So that right there just shows you how critical it is to the immune system um, early in life. And, and you know, when you look at some of the statistics around how, what we know that breastfeeding impacts, it's all of the immune-related things, at least early in life. So we know that um, breastfeeding protects against respiratory illness and gastrointestinal illness and ear infections. And the reason why we have all that data is because those things are really easy to study from an epidemiological perspective early in life. So we have concrete evidence that breast milk is this amazing protector against the environment in which we live. But so when you look at longer term things in terms of the immune system, that's where this whole area of research is emerging around the microbiome. And so we, we are only starting to understand how the microbiome impacts the immune system later in life. And we now know that breast milk has such a profound impact on the microbiome, though we don't understand fully yet how. And so what a lot of scientists think is that breastfeeding is basically priming your immune system for how it responds later in life. And just from an anecdotal standpoint, I mean, I will say I was formula fed. I was fed soy formula and I have had major health issues, including immune system issues. So I'm kind of like a case study, although, you know, we just don't have a lot of good evidence in this area on a broader perspective. But but I absolutely believe that there is this direct connection between the health issues that I have and with my immune system and the fact that mm. I was not exposed to any of these essential immune factors and everything that's really been evolved to, to prime our immune systems at an early age. How could there not be a connection? How could we just throw that away? And say, well, that's you know, it's fine. Babies will be fine. It's it just it blows my mind that we wouldn't want to uncover the, what the connection is there. Oh, of course, yeah. That's what I was going to ask you next was about your own personal history as a formula fed infant. Right. So uh, we know. I mean, I was fed soy formula. It was very trendy at the time in 1979 when I was born. For some reason, people thought soy was healthier, and now there have all been all these studies shown about how it impacts the thyroid. 
and I have hypothyroidism. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you talk about health, the problem is, is that there is no, people think that formula is regulated by the government. They think that the government studies it and knows everything that's in it and everything's been tested to be safe, but that's not true. There are no real regulations on infant formula and and infant formula manufacturers are allowed to say anything they want on the label. And the studies that they look to to ensure that formula is safe are studies that have been done by the formula companies. So there are plenty of people who are who are formula fed who are just fine. And, mm-hmm. you know, what you have to look at is from a big patient, from a giant population perspective, it's what's the increased incidence. So there will be plenty of babies who are just fine, but there will be plenty more who have increased incidence of thyroid issues or autoimmune issues. And basically what you're seeing now is that we have this epidemic in the modern world of cancer chronic disease, obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And here is this essential part of our, like the essential building blocks of a human's life that if you're exclusively breastfed for the first six months of your life and then nurse for at least two years or more or one year or more as the American Academy of Pediatrics says you should be, then what is the connection between these two things? I mean, we have skyrocketing rates of illness never before seen in history. And what essentially you have is that this has been a giant experiment of how we fed our children for the past 150 years with no precedent. I mean, there's, it's funny because when I wrote the book, I was very careful to sort of like say, well, here's the evidence we have and these things might be worth looking at. There was so much controversy at the time mm. and I so wanted my, my scientific research and my anthropological research to be heard that I... I was very cautious about my message, but it's been three years since I wrote the book and I'm not anymore. I mean, I think, <laughs> I, no, it's true. I think we should be up in arms and demanding society to create different conditions so that women who want to can nurse their children. I guess because you're not wanting to fuel the controversy of breast is best and you shouldn't formula feed and trying to sway people, I guess. But you're trying to, I guess, put that message out there, aren't you, about what it is it what it, I want to say benefits but the benefit isn't the right word of human milk well yeah totally well that's and that's the real problem and that's what I've had so much time to think about over the past three years is that if there's any takeaway from the book or what people want to do in the field of breastfeeding and human milk it's that we have to stop saying breast is best it is not best breast milk human milk is the human norm and There are risks associated with not breastfeeding. And that is a painful truth to accept in a society where women are not given the economic opportunity or, you know, the societal opportunities to make that possible. But it's something that we have to say. I mean, it's literally like if we if we replaced our human blood over the past hundred years with an artificial blood substitute and then. Everyone started saying, well, there's a real benefit if you have human blood in your body. That would be insane. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. Breast milk is the norm. There are no benefits to breastfeeding, only risks of not breastfeeding. Yes, that's perfect. I think I've heard Arthur Haynes talk about that when asked if breast milk is a privilege, like you say, human breast milk is the human norm. It's the standard baseline. It's what is biologically expected. So receiving anything less than that is just a disadvantage. That's exactly right. But it it has become a privilege in our modern 
industrialized society, especially in America. And that's very much what the book was about, too. Because, look, I did not have an easy time breastfeeding to begin with. I was formula-fed as a baby. And so this is was really an examination of what is wrong with our society that has made it so that we've come to see breastfeeding as a benefit. Why is it so difficult for women to breastfeed? And why is it a privilege in our society? And mm. as I started digging in, I started finding out all the links between how the U.S. government is also promoting infant formula to the poorest people in the country. I mean, half of all American infants are given formula for free from the U.S. government. We are literally subjecting our, the poorest, most disadvantaged people in the country. We are letting the formula companies essentially advertise to them through this government WIC program instead of giving women maternity leave and free breastfeeding counseling. The U.S. is the only country in the entire world, the only industrialized country without parental leave. And so I, I obviously can't say that breastfeeding is the human norm without also talking about how we it's no longer the norm and why in our society. That's such a huge part of the a part of the picture. Yeah, I can't even believe that you don't have paid parental leave. And just so frustrating. That's just one of the contributors, I guess, to the breastfeeding rates. It's a huge contributor. I mean, it's the statistics show when women go back to work, they stop nursing. So it sounds like more than 80% of American women now want to breastfeed their babies. They start out breastfeeding and half within a few weeks start supplementing with formula or give it up entirely. And it's because most of them are back to work by that time. What's the, are you in Portugal right now? Where are you? Uh, I'm in New Zealand now. Oh, you're in New Zealand. Yeah. Remind me again, what's the parental leave in New Zealand? Do you know? Oh, I think it's 16 weeks. Yeah, which isn't enough. I, oh, that's right. I, I was friendly with someone who was a breastfeeding activist in New Zealand, and that was part of the issue, too. That's, that's four months. That's not enough. So what, that's what I was just wondering. Is it, is it different in different states? So you have some initiatives right now in California where you can claim disability. They are calling like dis, extended disability as parental leave. I, I don't know how many weeks it is. I, I'm sorry. I'm not brushed up, but it's, it, we're talking about like a few weeks. In New York City, they've introduced legislation to also have a similar kind of paid leave. But we're talking about a couple of weeks. We're not talking about yeah. six months. I mean, it's very popular now with very big tech companies to offer paid leave for six months or even more. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're talking about the 1% of 1% of the society. Exactly. Yeah. The big yeah. corporations. That, yeah. Right. I mean, what would happen if like Target or Walmart had paid leave or Amazon? It would change the world. Oh, for sure. I remember when we lived in Germany, because I was teaching at a school, and the, the, German, <laughs> the German system was amazing. I think it was paid for the first year in job security for up to three years. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, wow, that, that's kind of what we need. I know, totally. It's like that, I think, in a lot of North, Northern Europe. Yes. And I will say it's not just Northern Europe. I mean, we tend to think of those countries like Sweden and these very uh, wealthy countries with very progressive values who have these benefits. But if you look at like Algeria or Uzbekistan, these countries also have, I don't, don't quote me on the statistics, but we're talking about like a year or two of paid leave. Wow. And it's because they know that they, the children of those countries will not survive in countries where infant formula is not readily available or people can't afford it yet. Children will die unless they have that paid leave. And so they are aware of the reality that human milk is the human norm and they have the policies to reflect that. So it's not only in these uh, super wealthy industrialized countries. It's everywhere except the U.S. But it's, it's no mistake that two of the biggest formula companies in the world of the big three are in the U.S. That is why. 
And so our policies reflect that. I mean, these corporations directly influence our policies. Mm. That was going to be one of my questions towards the end, but we're kind of talking about it now already. So in my personal life, the most common deterrences to continue breastfeeding is obviously this lack of paid parental leave. And then to me, I've also seen mothers who are frequently being encouraged by their doctors to supplement with formula because their babies aren't gaining weight quick enough or based on the the scale that, that they, they're supposed to. And I think also there's a lack of knowledge behind how vital it really is to their overall health, uh, their immune systems, their brain and emotional development. So what do you think could be done on a large scale to improve the continued long-term rates of breastfeeding? Right. Well, aside from paid leave and also access to childcare. I mean, I know it, it's it's a tough situation because ideally, I mean, personally, I would have loved to have been paid to have been at home with my children for the first two years of their life. But I know a lot of women don't feel that way and they want to be back at mm. work. And on-site childcare should be more of an option for those women. I mean, why should you have to leave your child at home with a stranger? You should have easy yes. access to your children throughout the day. There are companies that mm. do this. Patagonia is one of them. They've had on-site childcare for 30 years. But other than that, there really has to be access to knowledgeable professionals in healthcare settings that can help people. I mean, I, the perfect example of what you said about babies being told, um, but not babies being told, the parents being told to feed their children formula by doctors who are concerned about weight gain. I have a, uh, an old friend, a good friend who just had her fourth child and she called me. She's um, in another country right now because she's uh, was born in another country. And She's on vacation with her family, and she called me and said, right before she left, her U.S. pediatrician had said, you have to start supplementing with formula for your nine-month-old because they're losing weight. And she was like in a panic, and she texted me, and she said, what do I do? I really, really, really want a nurse this time. She never has made it this long with her, her other children, and she really wanted to keep it up. And so we just started talking, and we I started talking about they had just introduced food. And as we started talking, I realized the reason why the baby was losing weight is because they had started introducing food first and then breastfeeding. So she was on a schedule mm. where she was eating like carrots and very low calorie vegetables and applesauce and then offered breast milk and she wasn't nursing as much. Whereas we just talked about how can we change the schedule up so that she'll gain more weight or she, she doesn't lose that connection to breastfeeding because at that age, breastfeeding is still the most essential source of fat, of protein, of calories, of everything. And so she switched around the schedule and she started nursing in the morning first and then offering food, more of like an experimentation of tastes, not really focusing on food so much as calories. And she was co-sleeping, so she started nursing more at night. And within a week, she was gaining so much weight that she was like, okay, I think she's gaining too much weight now. And so this was kind of a long-winded example, but we just need more people who can offer this kind of guidance to moms along the way. I mean, I had access to a free lactation consultant when I had my first child, when I had Izzy, because I was in this nonprofit hospital and uh, that serves lower income communities. And, and they know that preventive health is important for keeping their costs down. And so they offer free lactation consultants because they know that if people breastfeed early on, then then 40 years from now, they'll have less people coming in with heart disease or diabetes or whatever issues are linked to not breastfeeding. And so Yeah, I just think we need more support, Mm. more people to talk to. I so agree with you 100%. Okay, it has only recently occurred to me that the environmental impact of our consumerism is not just about how we dispose of things that we no longer need, but 
of course, the impact to the environment due to their actual production. So as an environmental journalist, something I would really love for you to flesh out for us is the environmental impact of formula feeding. Yeah, that's a good one. I, there was supposed to be a whole chapter on it in my book, and I just I ran out of time. But <laughs> the, inter- the interesting thing is that when I was an environmental journalist, I never thought to look at this issue. Isn't that interesting? Before I had children. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'll break it down in the most obvious way possible, which is, okay, what's going into formula? Corn, milk, possibly soy, vegetable oils. All of these things have to be produced through intensive agriculture. So think of the cost of the pesticides. Many of these crops are genetically modified. So unless you buy an organic formula, the corn in your formula is genetically modified. Um, The soy is genetically modified. And so you have the environmental impact of genetically modified organisms. You have the water use just to grow those crops. Forget about the water that you're using to mix with the formula, Mm. just the water to grow those crops. Then of course you have, what does the formula come in? A canister you have or plastic if it's you know liquid formula ready to feed and hmm. every single time you feed your child you're throwing out a, a thing of formula and so really I mean we could go on and on we could look at the bottles like, and then when you look at the impact over the lifetime of feeding a child and that's just one child and I wish I had the statistics right here for you but there is a amazing book that I drew up a lot, I looked at for a lot of research called, um, I think, Milk, Money, and Madness. Mm-hmm. And they actually break down a lot of the environmental cost of all of this. But I mean, you can just imagine yourself every step along the way. And on a planet of 7 billion people and counting, there is no way this is sustainable. I mean, you're looking, for instance, at China, which also has one of the lowest rates of breastfeeding in the industrialized world. And part of that is because, you know, of the rising middle class and how many women are working now and not enough support to breastfeed and also the influence of the formula companies there. But the water supplies there are not secure. And so you've got a situation now where people are using bottled water to mix Mm. the formula for the bottles that you then feed your baby. So the idea that we can somehow continue down this road is, is insane. And I also will say, you know, in a world with where we are now seeing the effects of climate change. And there are people who have been displaced now because of climate change. And we have climate refugees. And even look in, look what happened in California this year with the wildfires. Imagine if you had to flee your home suddenly and you were displaced for that long and there was no access to infant formula. And so yeah. in a future where the environment is unstable, there's nothing we could do to be more resilient than to make sure that we have a way, a foolproof way of feeding our children. Mm, something I always think about like what would you do if you had to just suddenly leave everything yeah I know I think I mean in living in LA I think about that a lot especially with the earthquakes we had a couple weeks ago Mm, yeah yeah I don't know how to hunt and and skin an animal yet but at least I can breastfeed (laughs) (laughs) yeah breastfeed and I can maybe find some wild greens (laughs) yeah I can find a couple wild greens maybe some like lemons in my neighborhood (laughs) yeah I'm set. We're, we're set. We'll survive. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you share with us some misconceptions about breastfeeding that you would like to kind of clear up? Oh, that's a good one I haven't thought about in a while. Well, hmm. Let me think for a sec. I mean, I know this is silly, but a lot of people think that, and this is such a vain thing, but it is a reason why a lot of women don't want to keep breastfeeding. I, I know this from the moms I've personally talked to. 
there is this misconception that if you nurse for a long time, that your body will change, that your breasts will mm. somehow no longer look good. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, <laughs> I've breastfed now for eight years and counting, and I think I look better now than before I nursed. <laughs> so <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, yeah. Something funny to counter all the seriousness of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's also, you know, a lot of people think that it's hard. And it can be hard at the beginning. I had a really, really hard time and that people think it's time consuming. And it is in a way in that you have to actually have contact with your children. But I found it so much more freeing because like women in hunter-gatherer societies, even in you know pre-industrial agricultural societies who have to go out in the fields and harvest with their babies on their back, you can nurse anywhere, no matter what you're doing. Mm. And so a lot of people think it's going to be a constraint to your life, you know, that you'll somehow be attached to your child all the time. And you are, but you kind of, I thought it was so wonderful to be able to travel across the country with my babies and do interviews with like CEOs and scientists when I was nursing my children and you can do anything and they're just kind of there. And so I actually found once I got over that initial hurdle of the pain and figuring out the how to's, it's, I kind of think it's much easier than people think it is. It's like your baby cries. Don't second guess it. Don't look at an iPhone app to tell you if it's time to feed your baby. <laughs> Just feed your baby. And it's yeah. it's kind of a no-brainer. So I would say it's it's more empowering and and easier than a lot of people realize. Yes. And easier for the child. It's all, it's something that's always there if they're hurt or if they're sick. or That's something I really love, like with my son, if we really need to. <laughs> we had, uh, when Game of Thrones was on, we would have all our friends come over to watch it. We're like, well, we need to get the kids to sleep. So I'd bribe him to go to bed by, you can have some mama's milk. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an easy go-to just to get him so to sleep. So easy. And, and that's what we haven't even talked about. That I tandem nurse my children. So that was part of the impetus mm. for this book when I was like, how am I going to do this? Because I hadn't weaned my older one yet when I was when I gave birth to Mika. But the reason why I did it was not because I wanted to be some superhero tandem nursing mom. It's because I was so lazy and so tired when I was pregnant. I just was like, it was when Izzy was having a tough time, I was like, come here, just nurse. Yeah. And then when I needed to nurse the baby, I was like, well, you'll nurse too. Now I don't have to run around after you. <laughs> yeah. I definitely have used the boob as bribe. I'm not ashamed of it. <laughs> yeah. Makes life easier for everyone. Totally. <laughs> Okay, I will put links in the show notes to your website, your Uncivilized podcast, your book Unlatched, and your Instagram account. Is there anywhere else you would like people to go to find out more or get in touch with you? No, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Cool. Jennifer, I have really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you for taking the time to chat to me. Do you have any final words of wisdom that you would like to share with the listeners? Just that breastfeeding is the human norm. I don't think I said it enough times. (laughs) Stop saying breast is best. Thank you, Emily. This has been such a, such a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.